Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Chris Fisher. Chris is the play-by-play announcer for the Oklahoma City Thunder of the NBA. Before working for OKC, he was the radio voice for USC basketball for eight years, as well as the host for Trojan football broadcasts. Chris, thanks for coming on today. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. So take me back. I always love to hear the origin story for people is how did you actually get involved in sports? I mean, this goes back to probably a a childhood passion, just like many people who want to sort of fulfill those childhood dreams of wanting to be involved in professional sports and going to games and feeling the energy and admiring the athletes and just wanting to be a part of it. And I think that the older I got, the more that I realized that as much time as I was spending on following the teams that I love and just the competitive aspect of it, I needed that for fuel. I needed that like oxygen just for breathing for my existence. And there was no way that I was going to be able, be able to perform another job and handle my passion for the Niners, the Giants, the whoever it was or whatever sport that I wanted to be involved in. So I was in college and I remember I'd just gotten myself involved in the student radio station and USC football was really big at the time. And I really wanted to be a part of that. There was nothing like going into the Coliseum because they were the number one team in the country. And so I got involved at the student radio station. And I remember being sort of uncertain as to whether or not I was actually going to be able to make it happen a little bit. So I I wanted to have a fallback plan. My fallback plan was to be a political science major and to maybe go into law school. And I remember it happened my second year. And we I think there were the 2006 midterm elections. And we had somebody come into class and basically give us an opportunity to volunteer for all these propositions and these campaigns. And they said, Hey, look, you know, if these are successful, you'll have a job out of college and you'll likely be able to make a a pretty good successful career. And I remember thinking in that classroom that night to myself, there is no way I'm going to be able to focus on any of that and still be able to do sports on the side. Cause I wanted to broadcast, you know, the baseball games and the basketball games and just be a part of it. Cause I knew that that was going to be important for my future. If I actually did it, and it was kind of that moment where I was like, all right, I'm putting all my chips on the table and I'm going to try to be a sports broadcaster. And I'm actually going to try to make this happy. I'm sure happened. I'm sure my parents weren't too happy about it considering just what a risk it was. But I knew deep down that if I didn't do it, it was something that wasn't going to end well for me professionally. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I think people can relate to that moment of truth almost where you realize there's only one path forward. But interesting, you mentioned your parents. I was just curious, what did people around you say? I think I always think about LA is probably the one city in the world or one of them where you can tell people you're an actor and they don't give you a strange look. It's kind of like when I told people I was writing a book, the uh, yeah, good luck with that, buddy. Sports broadcasting, it doesn't quite have the same stigma. People, I think, probably maybe just give it a little bit more cachet because so many people have been 
actors and it's just so commonplace. But the people that gave me the hardest time were my friends. And they're always trying to beat you down and probably saying how your, your calls suck. And I remember most of my best friends went to Santa Barbara. And so I would drive up from LA and SC and go and visit them. And SC baseball was playing UCSB. And I was like, I'm going to broadcast the game from the bleachers. What a bad idea that was. I had my whole crew throwing peanuts at me and making fun of me and coming up to me in the middle of the games. They were listening and it was just, you know, it keeps you grounded, but they probably made more fun of me than anybody. Yeah, it's pretty funny. It's like you got to experience what the players experienced. Never think about razzing the announcer, actually. Mm-hmm. Don't let your friends get too close. <laughs> Definitely. What a supportive group sounds like. So take me a little bit forward from there. So how did you actually, so you made the decision to press go. This is really the option. This is the career, the life that you wanted. What were some of the next steps you took and some of the successes you had early on? So I basically decided that my best route professionally was to try to get into minor league baseball. And minor league baseball to me was, it was where the opportunities were because of the job fair at the baseball winter meetings. And it was also an opportunity for me to get the reps that I knew that I needed as a broadcaster because I was so young, so raw, needed to improve. And at that time, my mindset was, okay, I'll go the minor league baseball route and then try to work my way up and get into the big leagues and go that route and just try to get to the top. And my last semester at USC, the baseball winter meetings were going to be in Nashville. Nashville, Tennessee. And so I went and applied to go to this job fair. And I knew kind of going in that the job fair was going to be packed with other broadcasters. And every year there's about maybe 10 to 15 open broadcast gigs. And that coincides with about probably 300 college graduates who are trying to get into the broadcast field. And it can be intimidating. It can be really, really overwhelming because you're sitting there, I'm one of many, how can I create separation? How can I get my tape or my reel to stand out and get somebody to actually call me and give me an opportunity to get into their ear and let them know who I am as a person, as opposed to just being a broadcaster, which was very, very, very important to me. And I remember getting there and flying and landing at this job fair and throwing my disc in and throwing my CD in And it was just a pile, Darren, just a pile of envelopes of CDs. And I remember thinking to myself, that's not good. The numbers are not in my favor. And I went back and thought to myself, and this is something that I've used to this day, but it comes from Pete Carroll. For anybody who knows, Pete Carroll was the head football coach. And I was fortunate to have an opportunity to travel with the football team and kind of be a part of of what he was teaching. And I remember every single... Friday night before games, when he would give his pregame speech to the team and try to motivate them to get ready for the game, particularly on the road, he would say, you know, look, it absolutely does not matter what the other team does. They might score a touchdown and their fans are going to go crazy and it's going to be wild and they're going to try to get it in your ear, but it literally does not matter. The only thing that matters is If you guys execute and you guys do what you know you're capable of doing and you work hard, those fans that were loud for the touchdown are going to be leaving that stadium quiet. Just do what you do. It does not matter what anybody else is doing. And I just remember thinking that, like, I I can't worry about 
what all these other discs sound like or what all these other reels sound like. All I could worry about was myself, knowing what my capabilities were and my attention to detail and, and sort of that spirit. So it was something that I, I sort of filed away in the back of my mind. And I still apply it to this day. I can't worry about what other broadcasters are doing. I, I know that there are certain trends that, that are looked for, but I have to kind of run my own race, if that makes a lot of sense. But at the winter meetings, Darren, I ironically saw somebody who I knew was the assistant general manager of one of the teams that I applied for. And this is probably my, my first sort of stroke of luck is I, I just went up to him and started a conversation. Anthony Opperman, thank you forever. But the thing that separated me wasn't talking about broadcasting. I literally just asked him, why do you guys start games at seven o'clock as opposed to 7.15 or 7.30? And for him, it was an indication that I was interested in a lot more than just broadcasting, which is what minor league baseball is. You got to do a lot more than just put a headset on because you got to play so many different roles. And ironically, that conversation led me to the only phone call I got out of all of the jobs that I applied for amongst all the different people. That conversation gave my career a little bit of life. And he called me. Uh, the, let's see, the winter meetings were in early December. He called me right before Christmas and offered me an internship. And it was like, thank God, it's all I needed. And I ended up leaving USC before I even graduated because I had to start in January. And I, that was a tough conversation for my parents. Yeah, definitely. And at, just a point that you make, I think, is the importance of just being authentic and not worrying about what was on those other 300 discs, you know, what everyone else is doing, what style people are doing. I mean, I, I had the same approach when I was writing my book is I actually stopped reading similar books for a while because I didn't want to actually be influenced by them. And I actually wanted to write the book that I wanted to write. Versus actually creating the book that I thought other people thought I should write or what the marketplace thought I should write. But that's hard. I mean, it's hardest to truly be yourself. I mean, I don't know. Talk to me a little bit more about that in terms of just how you, I mean, obviously you, you asked a really authentic question to Anthony and just like, tell me a little bit more about that. It, it was probably my experience in sports and just having gone to games in terms of the question and then just having a little bit of curiosity. I think curiosity can take you a long ways and just kind of being perceptive and using that curiosity. I can't tell you how much the curiosity, whether it's the business, whether it's a person, whether trying to get to know somebody leads you to important conversations, conversations that will give you information, conversations that will help you guide yourself, conversations that help you find yourself. And I think that that sort of just element of curiosity can lead you to, to more and more people. And I know that it did for me in that particular situation, but it's also very important. I have crazy conversations with people still to this day in the NBA, just about random stuff. And you're always trying to, to gather information and learn more about that person or learn more about the league or learn more about another team. And you never know where it's going to go. And I think that it's incredibly valuable to just have that confidence and to be able to use that to your benefit because it can really take you a long way. In terms of being yourself, it's hard. It's really, really hard because we're in a society where we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people and who's doing what and who's had success by what age or whatever profession. And I know I, I, I still struggle with it. I see guys that are my peers that have certain opportunities and I'm like, gosh, what are they doing that I'm not doing? But 
if there's something, Darren, that has carried me through that and through opportunities where maybe I haven't gotten them that I think that I should have, there's been two things that I've really relied on. Number one is just work hard, really, really work hard. If you work hard and you do good work, it'll get noticed at some point. I promise you, like somebody is going to see it. Somebody's going to notice it. They're going to notice the product. They're going to notice your work ethic, all that stuff. And number two is just being a good person, just being kind. Like that can go so far. It's so little, it's so easy, and it can carry you and carry a lot of weight in your professional future, I've always felt like. Yeah, it's interesting. Some really fundamental and foundational attributes talked about, yeah, be a good person, have a good work ethic, and just be curious also. Just some really great lessons of life for that helped you in terms of getting in your profession, but obviously even beyond that as well. It's simple stuff. And it's, it's kind of in the back of your mind, you, you just like assume it like, oh yeah, you know, like, of course that's easy. I'll ask a question, but in the moment it's kind of not like in the moment you, you might have to like step out a little bit. You might have to push yourself in an uncomfortable situation to have a conversation with somebody or to make an introduction. And that's not easy to do. It's easy to get frustrated when things aren't going your way when you've maybe been passed up on an opportunity that you feel like is, is yours. It happened to me the year before I got the Thunder job. I was deep in the process of potentially getting into the NBA with another organization. And I'd gone through two different interviews, had flown to this particular city. And I just remember being so frustrated not getting it and just thinking that I was the person that should have gotten it. And I was qualified and I was ticked. But in the end, I was like, just keep doing hard work, be yourself, be a good person. It's going to come out okay in the end. And the next year, I, I ultimately landed a, another job in the NBA. So it was certainly a lesson for me. Yeah, I'd love to ask, ask you about that. But I want to go back a little bit in terms of that first minor league job. So what was that like? So your first, I guess, paid gig, or maybe it's an internship, so or, or very low paid. But what was that first job like in terms of just announcing minor league baseball. So this is almost like now you're doing it for real versus a job you had in college. It's a good baptism for rugged hard work. And I'm sure that in any profession, you have sort of these low level jobs that you just sort of have to do. And for us broadcasters, if you talk to enough of us, we'll all probably tell you at some point, if you've been through minor league baseball, you've been through the ringer, you've been baptized, you've earned your spot because it is the least glamorous job in sports. Maybe it is rough. It's rugged. It's low paying. It's long hours. It's terrible cities. It's long bus rides. It's crappy hotels. It's all of it for what it's just to be involved in sports. Literally like we, we, you just punish yourself just so that you can have this opportunity potentially that leads to something greater down the road. And I'm sure that entrepreneurs have to deal with this all the time. Like just the, the crap that they have to slog through to try to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But that, that's probably the way that it is for us broadcasters because, you know, I remember going to Salem, Virginia and Lynchburg, Virginia and these towns that have nothing and eat, you know, just eating a $5 foot long Subway sandwich for lunch and hopefully picking up something from whatever the club he made in the clubhouse after the games. And then you get on a bus and you drive nine hours overnight and you get going to the next city. And I remember being in the press box probably two or three months into my gig. And this was my revelation. My revelation was these hitters can hit 330 for the entire year and they are guaranteed a promotion, right? Like if you hit 
you control your destiny. You're going to go to the next level because hitting is a premium. You can kind of control your outcome. Pitchers, if you pitch well, you're going to get promoted. There's enough people that will go on your behalf. I could call the perfect game the entire season, and there's no guarantee that I'm getting promoted. I was pissed. And so I just had to find a way like, to get through it and keep improving every single night because it was an opportunity. I was happy to be there. I knew that uh, it was a start. It wasn't going to be my last job. If I just kept at it, I was going to get better as a broadcaster. And I, I am very, very thankful for the opportunity that I had there. It was in, it was in Virginia. I was from California. And so it was all the way across in the, in the East coast, which was a great experience for me and going and seeing some of those East coast towns and going to Wilmington, Delaware and getting a cheesesteak and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it's fun because now I can look back on it and say it was all worth it. Like it's easy to look back on it and say it was worth it. It was necessary. It was part of the process. You know, you have to kind of go through the ringer a little bit. and It makes you appreciate what you have now in that I'm not stuck in the Carolina League in single A, but it was, it was a very necessary step to getting there. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to have that viewpoint at the time. I mean, the same thing goes if you re- reference entrepreneurship and business and really anything in life that's worth accomplishing is it, it is a slog at times. You don't know if you're going to be successful. You don't know if you're going to get out. So those are so it's tough to have that right mindset to uh, to persevere. I was ticked. I was ticked when I realized like I can call the perfect game and, it's, and it could fall on deaf ears. Like there's no guarantees, but you just you, you just got to keep doing it. So what did you do to control that? So how did you do the equivalent of batting 330 so you got recognized? Like, how did you stand out from the pack and get that next job? So I wish I had an answer, but I don't. I left my first year in Potomac with the Potomac Nationals. That was in September of 2008. First of all, I had to go back and finish school. Like I told you, I, I left USC without having graduated. I had not finished Spanish three. And so it was looming there and I didn't have my diploma and my family was all over me about it. And my mindset was, I can't stay in Potomac and Woodbridge, Virginia was the city. I can't stay there over the course of the off season and justify being there for five months and just sell billboards, sell outfield billboards and spots in a pamphlet. Like I, I couldn't justify that being young and wasting a potential off-season of getting better in broadcasting. I knew that I, ne- I just needed to broadcast. I couldn't just waste an entire five-month period. So I left. I finished school. I moved back to Southern California with no other guaranteed job. Like Literally, my career is hanging by a thread. And I tried to apply to all these other minor league baseball jobs, and I didn't get a bite. I didn't get any opportunities. And I'm like, this is not good. This is not good. This is starting to head down an unemployment road that I didn't really want to have to face. I was doing high school football for one of my buddy's companies and it wasn't sustainable. And I finally got a job offer from an independent league in St. Paul, Minnesota. And at the same time, probably after about a week after I accepted that job, I got another call from a team in Oregon, the Eugene Emeralds who were were single A and I could be their number one broadcaster. And so I passed up the job in St. Paul, went to Eugene and ended up taking that job. And at that point, again, you're like, geez, thank God my career is still, still got a little bit of life because it was, it was running out of, running out of uh, oxygen there for a while. And I wasn't sure if I was going to continue or my career was going to continue. And that's a scary feeling. 
but I just got lucky that uh, this these outfits wanted to hire me. And so I took the job in Eugene. That was in April of 2009. And here I am doing single A baseball, but I was a number one in Potomac. I was a number two, meaning I didn't have as many innings as the number one. So I was able to kind of keep my career afloat. And I mean, barely Darren, just barely, it was hanging by a thread, but I had a job and that was all that mattered. Cause I felt like as long as I had that job, I could still continue to make progress going forward. And at some point being a number one was going to have more weight than being a number two. So what was the big break then for you in terms of how you got out of Eugene and eventually landed a job in the NBA as a play-by-play announcer? So the big break came after my first year in Eugene. It was 2009. And while I was at USC as an undergrad, I had made a ton of connections with people in the athletic department, really a ton of friends. I mean, these, these were people that I traveled with, ate dinner with, spent time with. And they knew how committed I was. They knew my professionalism. They knew I was SC through and through. And one of my best friends, I want to say in the summer of 2009, called me. And he said, hey, Chris, you know, we're, we're going to be broadcasting the USC women's basketball games online this year. Do you want to do it? I accepted it. And I loved it. And it was a great opportunity. Got to travel with the team. Did it for the the website for the university. But during that season, this is another part of the break here. The men's basketball broadcaster who I know, who I knew really well, his name was Rory Marcus. Rory was also the broadcaster for the Anaheim angels at the time. And Rory ended up passing away mid season. And it was a shock to all of us. And because of the relationships that I had made with the university and the people there, at 25 years old, I got really, really, really lucky that they decided to take a chance on me and move me from the women's chair over to the men's chair. And so I, start, I went from doing women's basketball to men's basketball, huge step in my career. And it changed my life because it gave me credibility. It moved me to a much bigger role in a huge market for a huge brand on a big radio station in the Pac-12. And I just remember thinking back, you know, there are people who you come across in your professional careers who are your fans and who are your advocates. And by fans, I mean like, that's like your mom and your uncle. Like, oh, you got it. You know, you're going to be great. You're going to do fantastic. We believe in you. Then there's the advocates who believe in you truly and are willing to sort of extend themselves and kind of put themselves out there on your behalf. And I felt like I had those at USC through the relationships that I built. And those are really, really important for whatever you do and whatever profession and being able to recognize those, I think is really important because I was, and it's people that are my friends to this day. And I think that you need them to be successful because at some point, somebody's going to have to take a chance on you. You can't do it by yourself. And particularly for me, people have taken a chance on me. Deciding to put a 25-year-old with no major Division I experience under his belt into that position at the time was very unconventional. It was very controversial. It was a risk by the university, but they were willing to take it. 
And I was able to convince them that it was the right decision. But I also had people that really backed me that I was the guy for the job. And it was by far the biggest decision in terms of taking the women's job and the biggest break that I ever got in my career. No doubt about it. It's interesting. And we try so hard to get that break, to meet that goal, to get that job, start that company, get on that speaking opportunity. And then we land it. And then we have imposter syndrome, self-limiting beliefs. What was that like doing that first game? I mean, you now you are effectively in the big leagues in terms of just a, a much bigger market, a bigger brand, and obviously a major media market. Yeah, it, it was intimidating. It was. I mean, you go from broadcasting single-A baseball in, in Eugene, Oregon, in Yakima, Washington, to Southern California, to fans in a market, Los Angeles being the second biggest market. I was scared. I was concerned. And you know, am I up to the task? Am I good enough? Are people going to be saying I, that they made the wrong decision? Of course, there's a little bit of self-doubt in there and you just have to do it. You just have to get in there and grind and figure it out. It's like, it's almost like trying to learn how to drive and get directions in a new city, like without MapQuest. Like you just have to make a couple of wrong turns here and you, you, you learn not to make that same mistake again going forward. And uh, there was a lot of learning lessons along the way, but the university stuck it out with me and they gave me a multi-year contract and they were willing to work with me. And I was you know, determined to prove myself. I took a lot of pride in being a young broadcaster and being in my 20s. And I felt like I was kind of carrying that burden on my shoulders because you, know, you want to be taken seriously. You want to be taken seriously as a professional, as a broadcaster. And the only way to do that is by putting together a solid game on a nightly basis. And I think that I did that. I, I had definitely had some growing pains. There were times where I just, I needed to find my voice and finding your voice is something that comes with time and comes with experience. And I don't think I found my voice truly until my third year when I finally had the confidence on a nightly basis where I was like, okay, this is, this is starting to sound the way that it's supposed to sound. And it did not happen overnight. I don't think there's any doubt about it. My first two years were probably rougher than I'd like to admit, just from a, from a personal quality standpoint. I, I mean, I got the job done and it was good and it was solid, but from, for what my expectations were and for where I wanted to take my career, those first two years were not, were not the best. Yeah, it's interesting in terms of finding your voice. I think obviously in, in my world, it's about leaders finding their own style, their leadership style. And I think a lot of people tend to just mimic or mirror what they see or what they read. And it just takes some time to do that. But how do you go about doing that in terms of finding your style, practicing so that you could actually show up in the way that you wanted to be as an announcer? Broadcasting in a lot of ways, you get better through experiences. There's no doubt. You just need the reps. But a part of that is in terms of the, the work itself, you cannot do it all at once. And so I've always compared it to like working on an art sculpture out of clay. One day you have to work on the arms. One day you have to work on the body. Another day you have to work on the legs. Another day you work on the head, but you can't do it all at once. And so my mindset was, all right, today I am absolutely 100% going to focus on my intro. Today, I'm 100% going to focus on how I sound when, when they're in transition. Today, I'm absolutely going to focus and make sure that I track the ball better than I've ever tracked the ball. Forget about everything else, but that is exactly what I'm going to focus on 
in this game on this night and I'm going to be better at it. And I found that that was something that really helped me rather than trying to figure it all out at once. I was going to just totally nail in on one particular area. And I think that that helped me. And I still use it to this day because I, I still struggle in, in certain areas that I'm trying to get better at. And that was, that was really important. It was really, really important, especially at a young age, trying to, trying to find my voice because my, my voice wasn't fully developed. It took a little bit of time. Radio was very fast paced, particularly that game. I had a color analyst that I also had to sort of incorporate into these broadcasts and make sure that he was feeling like he was included, even though it was a fast paced game. So it's all just a process and attention to detail. I think that that was really, really important because if there was a component, Darren, that I prioritize more than anything throughout this entire process, through my, my reels, my tapes, everything was listenability. The listenability aspect of what I did to me was more important than anything else. It was more important than talking about scoring time. It was more important than even where the ball was at sometimes. And that's probably a mistake on my part, but it's true because I felt like if it was easy to listen to, people were going to like it. If it was easy to listen to, people listening to my tape were going to be drawn toward how I sounded and maybe want to listen to more and maybe consider hiring me. The listenability factor was the most. And that just took a lot of attention to detail of, you know what, that, that sounds a little bit too high pitched or, you know what, I, that sequence of words in that particular moment, that didn't sound right. Like there is a serious art to what we do and you just have to hone in on those little details constantly. That's super interesting. I think most people don't get a chance to sit in the booth and broadcast on live TV and there's so many different elements. And I think so much really pertains to just leadership in general, which is obviously what I focus on, but just developing one thing at a time. A few years ago, I used to say every day is an opportunity to get better in every way. Obviously, clearly I'm a very optimistic person, but I love your approach of saying, let's let's focus on one thing at a time. The intro, following the ball, obviously it's very basketball centric, very sports announcer centric. I think that's, that's super uh, important, but I love the idea also of, it's like you found the one metric, if you will, that matters, which is listenability. You can talk about all the other things you could be focusing on, but for you, it came down to listenability. I think that's kind of a, could be a neat way for people to actually evaluate themselves, which is not necessarily listenability, but what's the one thing that really matters that's going to allow them to stand out and uh, be that kind of person that they want to be? 100%. I put more emphasis into it probably than anything else because I knew that when somebody was listening to my reel, if they were listening to it at all, they were going to be able to make an impression on me within the first 10 to 15 seconds. Like that's how early it is before they're like, nope, we're just going to move on and we're going to go to the next guy because he doesn't sound good enough. It has to sound good. And I think that that's something that's carried my work and that I've undoubtedly prioritized at every step. I mean, I'm talking from my first reel and trying to get that job with the Potomac Nationals to my job with USC, to my job with the Pac-12 Network, to my job with Fox, to my job with now with the Oklahoma City Thunder. First priority, first and foremost, how does it sound? Without a doubt. Because I knew that that was going to matter the most to the people that were in positions to hire me. I'm in the minority on that, Darren. There's, there's people who take very different approaches. There's people who will sit there and say, you know, you've got to make sure that you got the nuts and bolts down and they'll prioritize what you're actually saying. Full disclosure, I don't give a shit what I'm saying as long as it sounds good. 
as you mentioned at the very beginning, it's it's like staying true to who you are. Totally. 100%. All this, all right, next time I watch you, I'll, I'll tune out what you're saying and just focus on how you're saying it. <laughs> you know what the problem is? And, and you and I were talking off, uh, off air about this a little while. I say off air, but off podcast here was, I go back to John Miller with the San Francisco Giants. You know John Miller very well. John Miller could literally be talking about a fourth grade piano recital and it sounds good. Give me more. I want more. It's just the way that it is. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, that leads me to questions. So talk to me about some mentors. I mean, you're obviously in a really subjective craft, right? I mean, you have 300 tapes trying to stand out, being you. Talk about the role of mentors in terms of getting in the business, staying in the business, staying sharp, getting better. Like, Who are some of your mentors besides John Miller? There's been guys who, who I think have been able to separate themselves because of their versatility, their ability to do multiple sports. I just remember growing up, the thing that I thought that separated the best broadcasters, the guys were, that were doing national games, the guys were, that were doing the biggest games were the guys who weren't homers, were the guys who sounded good, were the guys who were really versatile and just seemed to have a good relationship with their, their color analysts. And so I sort of gravitated to all of them. John Miller happened to be one. He happens to be the San Francisco Giants radio announcer, but he did ESPN Sunday Night Baseball for almost two decades. And so I, I always tried to, to find the common thread between them, what separated them. And I think it was those qualities. And so I sort of patterned my broadcasts in that way, not being a, a huge homer, not just getting totally carried away with calls. I tried to approach it like, not like I'm doing an ESPN game, because I was obviously the voice of USC or the voice of OKC, but you know, you want to do it in a in an easy listen way that's going to appeal to a lot of people. And that goes back to the listenability factor. And there's certain guys who I've just loved watching. My favorites including John Miller, uh, Kevin Burkhart, who is about to be Fox's number one. He's going to replace Joe Buck and now be Fox's number one for football. He's going to do the Super Bowl here two out of the next three times. He's incredible. He was a former used car salesman in New York. He's unbelievable. His voice is incredible, but he does. He's on college basketball. He does football. He can do whatever he wants. He's incredible. Mike Tirico, who's going to be on Sunday Night Football now, he's going to replace Al Michaels. Mike Tirico's done the NFL draft. He's done college basketball, college football, NFL, Olympics, you name it. Like versatility. Versatility will take you places. Another one is Dave Pash. Dave Pash does Arizona Cardinals football, and he does ESPN college basketball, ESPN college football, and the NBA. Incredible guys who can do a lot of different things, and they're great. They're great people. They're always willing to help, and I'm fortunate to have relationships with all of them. Yeah. I mean, I can't even say enough about the importance of mentors, just the ones that have been so important in my life. And you made a point earlier, it's just, you really can't get there by yourself. You need those other folks around you because they're going to give you that break. They're going to believe in you. They're going to help you along the way, maybe support you. And you maybe don't even believe in yourself. They can give you those words of affirmation and encouragement. Nobody gets to where they are in any position of success without somebody sort of walking alongside them. And we're all in this business where people would line up around New York city blocks to get these jobs. And there's only so many. And like I said, I mean, you can call the perfect game and there's no guarantee that you're going to get the job that you want, or you're going to get the next step that you want, but it never hurts to, 
to have people who you respect that you sort of look, look up to. And I would say that, that the majority of the people in my business, fortunately, are good people. They're very good people who want to help other people out. And that's a huge benefit. I don't know about every other business or industry, but you typically don't get to being a, a high-level broadcaster by being a, a bad dude because there's just you're just dealing with too many people on a daily basis and you just the reputation will get out and nobody's going to want to work with somebody who makes life miserable for 82 nights a year. Yeah, and I guess just the the number of on-air hours to get a, provides a real window into someone's character and really who they are. You know everything about these people. Everything from who they're texting to how they spend their time to what they want to order for breakfast. I'm telling you, nonstop. But we have we have good people in the business and I think that I think I can say that with a lot of confidence. Yeah, and that's important. You mentioned something else interesting. You talked about versatility will get you places or something like that. And just obviously, you've shown that in terms of just going from from basketball to baseball to back to basketball, like just so important from a leadership perspective. And obviously, I think about it through entrepreneurship and business because things are changing, industries are changing, marketplaces are changing. You need to be versatile. You need to be adaptable. How do you go about actually embracing that and developing some of that adaptability? So versatility to me is, is twofold. Number one, in being able to, like I said, broadcast across all platforms from sport to sport. There are different skills. Basketball is way different than football because basketball is a fast-paced action sport. And you've got not as much time to let your color commentator sort of speak up. You can in between plays, but it's just, it's a lot tighter. Football is a color analyst sport. There is so much downtime. You got 40 seconds after each play that needs to be filled. Who fills that? The color analyst. That's why John Madden was so good and so successful because he could bring that 40 seconds to life. Baseball is a play-by-play sport. You've got to carry the load because there's so much more downtime. So there's these little idiosyncrasies and differences between the sports that you have to master that. And if you can still sound good by doing each one of them, that to me is a level of versatility that will separate you from other broadcasters. Second part of versatility to me, this applies probably more to when you're younger and you're on the way up, but not saying no. If you are trying to make yourself a professional, whatever business it is, you should not be able to spell no. Do not say no, whatever you're doing. Always say yes. Your willingness to do stuff, your willingness to be versatile, your willingness to be a team player, uh, your willingness to, to step out of your comfort zone and do a volleyball game. Like I remember doing a, a crappy volleyball game, but I did it because I knew that I needed to do it and I wanted to make the relationship and I wanted to get to know the people and it may or may not have helped me in the long run, but whatever, say yes, do it. That versatility to me, I think is important and people will recognize it and they will, they'll want to reward you with another opportunity later on down the road because of your willingness to do the shitty job in the first place. Yeah. It's interesting as I think about just say yes, in terms of just embracing growth and discomfort, but I love what you're saying, which is just say yes to actually round out your, some of your skill sets and get some of that experience that you may not get otherwise. hundred percent. You're going to get the experience. You're going to meet somebody that you've probably never met. You're going to be out of your comfort zone. And all of that is, it, it may or may not help you, but you'll never know. There's no downside. There's literally no downside. And if you get paid, you get paid. It's an even bonus on the side. 
So you just, sometimes you just got to do it. And there's, there's times where I, I, I still don't think it's a, a good idea to say no, just because it, it can be a sort of a representation of you maybe not wanting to go the extra mile. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously you're now at the the top of the mountaintop, so to speak. You're obviously play-by-play announcer for an NBA team. How do you stay sharp? How do you push yourself to grow and get better versus actually just rest on your laurels and coast? I think that we all want to to take your potential as far as you can go. Like to me, one of the things that I think drove me in the first place, Darren, was fear of failure. That was one of the things that I knew that I I applied that was a motivating factor, particularly when I was younger, to be a broadcaster. I, I did not want to fail. I wanted to prove it to myself. I wanted to prove it to my friends, my family more than anything. I wanted to be taken seriously that, hey, look, not only can I get this done, but I can get it done at a high level. Just watch. And that competitive spirit also kind of kicked into gear. But one of my biggest pet peeves is just unfulfilled potential. And everyone's always said, well, where do you want to end up? What do you want to do for your career? And I don't want to put a ceiling on it because I, I want to be able to let my, what I think my potential is sort of spread its wings. And I, I really, really rely on that because I want to take my career as far as it'll go, wherever that might be. And I think that that's still a bit of a, a motivating factor to do the highest level games that your career will let you take you. And that's important. That's important. It's a motivating factor. It makes you want to do good work. And I think that there's also a competitive aspect of it. To me, I'm such a competitive person that every game to me is an opportunity to like win the broadcast. It's really weird. It's a, it's a sick mindset, but I want to like win the open. I want to win that particular call. I want to win the first, like in my mind of what I consider a good broadcast, if that makes sense. If I have a bad open, I've basically, I've lost the first half of the game because I'm pissed off and I'm like, that's, that's bad work. Step it up. Like you're losing what you prepared to do. You're, this is the game that you're playing and you just lost because you let some distraction get in your head or you went too fast or this and that. And I've always applied that sort of same mindset to all the sports that I played from skiing to golf and all that kind of stuff. So to me, it's just this never ending pursuit, I guess you could say of trying to one, be competitive with myself and two, take my career to the highest level possible, given what I think my potential is. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously just making almost a competition or a scoreboard, everything, trying to win the opening Maybe win the first half, first quarter, win the game. I'm just curious. Obviously, yeah, the the comp- competitive factor, that drive, that fear of failure, the wanting to win each of these moments drives you higher and higher. But how do you actually create some intention behind that? Because obviously, you you've done so. I think at least somewhat intentionally in terms of going to USC, getting into broadcast journalism, going to work for multiple minor league teams, and jumping to USC, and then ultimately to the OKC Thunder. Like, how do you? create some intention and and direct that. That's one aspect of it from a personal side. There's also a connection side with people. And part of that is through just simple joy, the joy of the broadcast. And that's, that goes back to one of the reasons why I got into broadcasting was 
if you go to a game or you listen to a game and you hear the broadcaster in a high moment giving a good call on, let's say, like a home run or a big shot, there's a certain exuberance. And if the broadcaster is doing his job, there's a certain joy that is passed along from the broadcaster to the fan. That's why I got into it in the first place. That's, that's what kind of got me motivated was that joy. And I got it from John Miller and I wanted to be able to pass it along to people the same way that it, it affected me. Cause it was very, very positive. It was a very positive experience. And we all like going to sporting events and like being around our friends and like hearing big moments. And that gave me just a kind of a, a sense of purpose. And I wanted to be able to give people that same joy that I got in those moments or just going to the ballpark or watching the game or whatever it was, because I think it can carry a lot of weight. And having worked for the Thunder, I've really learned how important these games are to people and how much they look forward to them, how much they want to connect with the team, how much they want to connect with players, and how much it is a part of their daily lives. I mean, I am literally coming into their living room every single night and spending dinner with them and their families and bringing them this product. And so I take a lot of pride in that and I want to do it in a good way. I want to do it in a formative way and also an entertaining way and a joyful way because it's affecting their daily lives and it has to be in a positive way. It can't be in a negative way. If I'm having a bad day, sure as hell better not show up for that two and a half hours. Absolutely cannot. If I have a bad open, I'm going to be pissed inside, but it can't translate over into the first quarter or the second quarter or the rest of the game where I have this whole other obligation that I have as my duty as the team broadcaster. Yeah, as interesting as the the intimacy of coming into someone's living room, into their dinner every night, and also you mentioned the importance of the team and the games. Just It just made me chuckle when I did some quick background research on you. The first thing when you look at Chris Fisher, OKC, is where is Chris Fisher? So can you tell, tell me a little about that story? It's pretty, uh, a pretty funny anecdote. Well, that happened this past year and uh, we don't have like substitute broadcasters in when you're the broadcaster for a team, you're, you're the play-by-play guy. There's a color guy. There's no backup play-by-play guy that, that travels with a team. But as everybody knows, I mean, given the times, given COVID, I got COVID from my girlfriend who also travels with the team back in January and I missed a handful of games and the fan base as anybody knows, you go on Twitter for five minutes, you're, you're going to hear something about something from the fans. And the fans came after me on Twitter. And everyone was wondering, where the heck are you? Why aren't you calling these games? Are you okay? When are you coming back? And I just had to tell them, look, I, I, I've got COVID. I'm out. Our coaches had COVID. He missed four games. Like it's going around. Half the league had it. And uh, it was really, really a weird feeling. Our radio guy ended up stepping in and taking over and, and doing the games. And they did a simulcast, which was kind of cool. And so everybody kind of picked up the slack that I was leaving. But Twitter definitely let me hear about it. And some people wanted me gone too. Some people were like, oh, what, a, what an upgrade. You know, bringing the radio guy, what an upgrade, which was kind of funny. And it's only naturally, not everybody's going to love you. But uh, it was kind of funny. I ended up missing, uh, I, I want to say seven games because of COVID. And then I had to miss three more games because of a, a family service. But I could have come back earlier, but the NBA had really strict protocols 
and uh, thresholds in terms of my contagiousness. So I was held out. Yeah, it makes me think about when you work for a company, you go on vacation and you hope that they missed you and you're gone. You hope that, you know, maybe there's some things that it didn't go perfectly, you know, maybe secretly in your head. So kind of an interesting story. Exactly. Well, cool. Hey, Chris, thanks so much. This is a ton of fun. Appreciate you taking the time today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks and see you all in the next episode.